Unloose the goose. We'll take no views. Your paradigm's run out of time and we've got no use. Unloose the goose. Honk, honk, everybody. Welcome to Unloose the Goose, episode 52. We're going to do a 2.0 episode today about civil disobedience. And today on the show, we have Professor CJ of the Dangerous History Podcast. We have Xavier Hawk from Phyron and Baseline. We have Jack Spierko from the (laughs) Survival Podcast. I'm Nicole Sauce from Living Free in Tennessee. And I was so excited by the last episode Um, As we put our heads together, we thought, well, let's talk today about a second focus. So the first one focused on the why of civil disobedience. And today I want to cover a little bit more about what we've learned from examples of civil disobedience throughout the ages. And then I thought it's great that CJ had time to be on today's episode because he can give us some of those deeper insights into this. So we'll cover that. We're also going to talk a newsbuster show or discussion about the eviction ban and all of these millions of people who are about to be kicked out of their house, billions of Americans about to be thrown out on the streets. And then, of course, we'll end on Snooker the Goose. So let's start out with the first question. What is the background or how would you define civil disobedience? And I'm going to start with you, Jack. We can do that, but aren't you, uh, aren't we skipping something really, really, really important? Yeah, totally. What's everybody drinking? (laughs) I'm so happy. I am so happy. Why are you happy, Jack? Because of Yangling. (laughs) My love affair with Yangling goes back to high school. I grew up in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, where this stuff comes from, and there's been no Yangling in Texas until this year. And now there's Yangling oh. here, so I am I'm enjoying uh, one on one uh, on on the on the home plate at bat, and and another on deck tonight. So does I'm it very taste happy. the same? Uh, yeah, the the sort of. That's too complicated for this discussion. <laughs> yeah, um, all right, all it right. It tastes exactly like it does if you buy it in a can that looks like this in Pennsylvania, where they make it. Um, the original formula. If you want that, get the Golden Pilsner. That that's the original one. There was one. There was before the microbrewery boom. There was one. That's that's what I drank in school. Awesome. And and did you buy that in your very state? I did. I was at Albertsons of all places, oh, and there was like a giant display, and I was like, it really happened. And so people <laughs> need to start bringing you rum instead yeah, of mingling yeah. to the fall event. Yeah, I, I, I hesitate. Like some people think I'm a scotch drinker, and I'm like. I hesitate to say what kind of scotch you need to bring me if you want to bring me scotch because I, I feel bad about asking for people to bring me scotch that I actually drink. It's, it's pretty expensive, but rum's pretty cheap, man, so a decent bottle of rum will go a long way when you come visit. Okay, CJ, what do you got? First off, I'm shocked that Yingling only recently made it to Texas. It's been in Florida as long as I can remember, oh, no. so that's, that's strange. But um, I am enjoying a very, very... Um, Needed and well-deserved, I believe, because I've had a hell of a week so far. Maker's Mark on the Rocks. Oh, I approve go. of that. I approve of that. Slancha. 
Okay. X, Ice got? tea. Ice tea. Ice Not very tea exciting. In a styrofoam cup, no less. Is that I, keeping so it I, cold? I went, yes. I went to the school board <laughs> meeting for Palm Beach County just as a curiosity. I wanted to see, you know, what the sentiment and the feeling and the vibe was. And I stopped at the gas station and that was the quickest thing. Well, I've got gin today. Gin, Very a little nice. bit of I feel soda like I'm out of the loop. It's just been a gin week, probably for similar reasons that CJ has. Real gin, mm -hmm. not not mock gin. No, it's actual. Okay. Angry Ray. Okay. I mean, hey, Rob. I see you that. Can't leave the bottle on your desk, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rob's drinking scissor up. Scissor. Okay. That's, that's, uh, Dessert. yeah, what the hell that is. Urban, urban, urban drink with, uh, Sprite and, um, uh, Robitussin. And Hayes is up to some shit. I'm not sure what all that means, but. <laughs> yeah. Hayes is just having a great time. He's got his hand up, his mouth <laughs> out, and a glass of something. <laughs> okay. Let's go into Newsbusters. So I sent you guys y'all a link from CNN. Household evictions warning from Goldman Sachs. So the Supreme Court ruled that the moratorium on evictions can no longer be enforced. And the sky is falling and a whole bunch of people are being kicked out of their house. What do you guys think about the reporting on this topic? To me, it's a it's a really, really complicated issue, morally speaking, because on the one hand, you know, probably we all to some degree sympathize with the property rights of the landlord and like, hey, you're not paying your rent. You know, I can't pay my bills. On the other hand, you know, how many of these people, the reason they can't pay their bills is not actually their fault. It's the effects of lockdowns and that sort of thing, right? The state stepped in and, you know, in some cases pre prevented them from going to work or running their business or whatever. So I don't know that there's any kind of like a clear cut answer or solution to, to this particular problem. Jack? I, I disagree. You, they, these people have gone more than a year without having their rent enforced. Um, they've been given multiple stimulus checks. They, if they are unemployed, they've gotten a kicker on top of that. Um, how long do you do something like this for? I, I, I guess it depends on where they are and what the lockdown policies have been. You know, maybe, maybe if they've been in a place that's been locked down hard the whole time, it's a little different than if they if they're in places where the lockdown has been less severe or lasted less long. And I also kind of feel like the numbers are exaggerated. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll see. But like if it's as bad as they say it is, then maybe real estate prices will stabilize when you have all these properties come up for availability. Um, I think it's like most things. The media is overplaying it. I don't I'm not saying it doesn't affect anybody, but I, I would bet that. The total number of people who have not paid their rent for over a year that really didn't pay their rent, not because they could get away with it, but couldn't do it is a fairly low number. That, that's my instinct on this. I, and I, I don't know. I kind of agree with you. Like if you're in New York City or something, maybe like some places that are really heavily locked down, Portland, but most of Oregon, you know, I, I, I don't know. And then in the end, I, you know, if you want to come up with a social program for this, then pay the person's freaking rent for them, right? You're stealing money. You're printing trillions. Anyway, don't expect me to to eat 
my the, the rent I'm supposed to get from my tenants, right? Like, how yeah. am I supposed to do that? The bank doesn't like the bank can still take away my property, right? It doesn't help me, and there's nothing there's nothing to balance this. You okay? So a lot of times we hear about things called unfunded mandates. That's when the federal government tells the states you have to do something, and it's not like you just do it. It's something that costs money, but the federal government makes you do it, but doesn't pay for it. That's what this is, but it's even worse because I don't have the ability to tax anybody's a landlord. I know uh, Nicole does rental properties. I don't know how long she could maintain ownership of her property if she had a tenant in there who doesn't have to pay the bills. And then as a landlord, you still have to make sure that, like, the lights will come on. You still have to make sure that, like, if the toilet breaks. So I got to say, ain't paid me in six months, and I got a plumber in there plumbing the toilet because they're too lazy to do it for themselves. No, out. Get out. I'm sorry. I got no sympathy. Go figure something out. Move to another state, whatever. I got no sympathy. X, what's your hot take? I know I'm a dick, but whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I so called you question. an asshole on my podcast today, Jack, just so you Okay, know. cool. You're one of my assholes. Hey, friends. I did too. <laughs> um, so my question would be, how many people of that number genuinely, A, have been affected by their job being affected by the, by the COVID breakout? Second would be, how many naturally were just operate regularly three, four months behind. Cause I know people do that. Um, I have, I've, I, I'd imagine that there's a percentage out of that list of people who are generally delinquent on their rent and, you know, for whatever reasons are a couple months behind and that they managed to keep their positions in their homes. So that is a factor. And then, you know, like CJ said, I, I agree that it's a nuanced thing, but the fundamental core, uh, the, the, the state really shouldn't have put that in in the first place. And if so, should have had a, a money set aside to help those people relocate if needed. Right. Not that there should be, you know, that kind of a net anyway, but if it's there already and it's happening, you know, they fuck this thing up big time. So I'm a landlord and I sympathize a lot with landlords who cannot right. get people out. Um, so that's my bias going into this. Right. I also had a situation during this moratorium where the guest of one of my tenants in an apartment complex pulled a gun on the tenant next door because they asked them to um, stop blocking the driveway so they could leave. Oh, that's a, that's a normal response. Off. Fuck. And one tool I did not have to deal with this problem was to give notice to the tenant to get out that had the violent guests, right? Wow. What I ended up doing was offer cash for the person to get out and not trash the place. And they got out. That's what I had to do because I could not get a court date to even get a violent with police report person out because the courts just weren't taking anything. And, you know, and since that time, that place has been empty because now I'm really picky about who's going to go back in there because if they come in and don't pay rent and there's a moratorium, I'm screwed from an expense. Right. It costs more to have somebody in there than to have it empty. And you see a lot of empty rentals around. So on the one hand, we have people who have not had to pay rent, who have taken advantage of that. Nothing in place at all for landlords to cover their expenses except for rent assistance, which um, they somehow managed to get PPP money out really quickly at the expense of a lot of fraudulent applications. But 
the majority of the rental assistance money has not gone out to pay rent landlords for back rent. Mm-hmm. And then you, you also have a situation where in a really bad situation, there is no tool to deal with it. So you have people who are stuck in situations where there may be a violent offender next door that can't be kicked out and, and they need to leave. You know, it's like, okay, well, I shouldn't have to leave, but I better get out of here because I'd rather leave than be dead, right? That's a really interesting scenario. I, I'd say unique and also fraught with a bunch of challenges. And, you know, as we go into the fall, right, um, and I mean that in many more ways than just one, you know, how do you resolve disputes like that if there is no state, if there is no court system? Because effectively what you experienced was there is no court system. There is no state yeah. to intervene. Like you're on your own, right? And I, I think that's a creative solution, um, but it, it's a one that the listeners should think about in relation to themselves, their exposure, and what happens when the state is not there to help them, quote unquote. See, I, th- I think it's worse than no state. If there was no state, Nicole would have called some crazy ass people. She knows, right? Just saying, right. there's a few yeah, of us, yeah. and then yeah. we would have went over and said, "I understand that you're moving out today with a baseball bat." And then he would have moved out one way or another. Yep. He wouldn't have got any money, but he would have left. What you have is a a, a point where the state is protecting the delinquent at the expense of what you would normally refer to as the upstanding citizen. Yep. And there's that's just been par for the course. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, deviancy here, we had the Supreme Court of the United States say, this is bullshit. You can't do this. And then the Biden administration has that tard that runs CDC now come out and declare a health emergency and say the, the, the eviction ban stands for public health. And yeah. all I can say is someone that's concerned about other rights that I have being taken away from me. Um, thank God the Supreme Court came back out and said, no, we meant what we've been said. You can't do this because if that was allowed to stand, I guarantee you the next edict would have been, uh, we have a public health emergency and we're, you know, banning certain classes of firearms for public health. And if you, if you right. don't uphold the first ruling, the second ruling by default becomes possibly possible to be enforced. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this was a much bigger thing than the property itself. It is, do I have a right? Do my constitutional rights get su- suspended because somebody got sick? And man, I, I mean, that's you know, the court didn't no, say obviously. you couldn't do this. The court said that the 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 executive branch couldn't do this independently is what the court said. If Congress had got together, passed another law and said we're extending it, it would have stood. Yeah. That, that sort of thing is happening right now in the school board. I went to the school board meeting today just to be curious and see how the process went down. And it was essentially two hours of people railing against these elected officials who are completely going against their their constituency, let's say, their their freedoms, their liberties, they're making masks mandatory. A plus students who have never had disciplinary action in their life are getting suspended, getting, uh, you know, kicked out of school. So it's it's happening across every sector. So how do you how do you stop it? Which is our topic today, right? Civil disobedience. <laughs> it, it is a good segue. I mean, it is civil disobedience. I just saw this chick in California. Blonde gal, I don't know if y'all saw the video. Can't tell you what she looks like because you only see her from like the side and the back. But she was fire. And she was telling the school board somewhere in SoCal, 
basically, we're not asking you, we're not explaining it to you. We're here today and we're unmasking our children today and you're not doing this anymore today. Now, I don't know how that looked on the other side of it. What does that mean? Does that mean that I'm physically saying my kid's not wearing a mask and if you touch my kid, I'm going to whoop your ass? I don't know. She sounded like that's what it meant. Right, right. You know, but like, where is that line? Like, how do you actually stand up and say, we're not letting you do this anymore and then actually mean it? I mean, does that mean that every parent is showing up on Monday with their kid in their school and going, my kid's not wearing a mask? Leave? No. Screw. Not leaving. I paid for this place. I'm not going anywhere. Well, we're going to make your kid put a mask. Go ahead and touch my kid. Go ahead. Because I'm thinking the average person, if it was me or X or CJ saying, don't do it, would be like, I, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do this today. And if it's one person, they're going to call the cops. Cops are going to come in and thump you. Right. But if you have literally every kid in there has one or both parents, like I see, I think with civil disobedience, there has to be a point where, like, to get certain things done, it has to be a body count issue. You have to outnumber yeah. them to the point where they're like, I don't, no, nah, we're not doing this. Yeah, because they'll do it if they can get away with it. If enough people don't stand up, they'll they'll do it. If they if they are not afraid, enough people will say this is not going to work. If they're not afraid of us. Right. Of the people, then then we are not doing our job. And we, we like, how can we blame them? They're going to take everything that they can in that situation unless we stand up and say no. But how to do that effectively, how to organize it, how to do it lawfully, how to do it intelligently, how to do it in a way that uses their system so that they have to abide by it or become evil themselves. But when do we stop worrying about that one word you use lawfully? As long as it's lawful, it's not civil disobedience, right? Right. It, yeah, it becomes disobedience when it becomes unlawful behavior. But if you're smart, then you figure out how to engage in unlawful behavior that makes it impossible them, for them to actually enforce the law. Like if you think of like Gandhi's march to the sea, they could have totally like grabbed Gandhi and just thrown him in a truck and beat his ass, right? But like, do you want to be the government on the world stage arresting someone because they said, I'm going to the ocean to dry out water and make salt. It was like, it was such a pure, it was such a pure thing that any rational person would go, wait a minute. You mean like, so that's different when you got all the COVID Karens running around and you got this, this, this blonde chicken. So Cal basically saying, I will goat rodeo you on the ground. If you touch my kid, that <laughs> it's not quite the same clear cut where everybody's on your side right away thing. So I'm not sure. In, in civil disobedience, um, I think, People need to think about it like very, very uh, cold-bloodedly strategically. You know, you, you're making a stand for a moral cause, but in terms of how you do it, you have to be very calculating because optics and narrative are really the battlefield. And so yeah. anything you do that makes you appear to lose the moral high ground or appear to be crazy or appear to be the belligerent yep. is going to weaken you. Yep. And so it's a very, very, um, a lot of thought has to go into it. And if you look into a, a lot of the successful cases of historical civil disobedience, there's usually a lot of planning and thinking that goes into crafting what they're doing and the narrative that's behind it. And there's also usually a lot of organization behind it. Kind of like that woman, uh, sorry, go ahead. 
Yeah, I was just going to say there has to be a lot of discipline, too, because um, if you start to do anything that makes you look like the aggressor or the bad guy or the villain, then the powers that be are going to jump on that. They're going to blast that at everybody, you know, in, in bold font. And then you become like the way most um, mainstream Americans would look at like the Branch Davidians, right? Right. You know, whereas we at least have some sympathy with them. I mean, you know, I, there's aspects of of Koresh and his followers that I'm not a fan of. And certainly, you know, there's some sounds like some sketchy stuff did happen there. On the other hand, I think we'd all agree they did not deserve right. what happened to them at the hands of the federal government. Yeah. But no, th- they were able to be um, destroyed in the narrative so that the vast majority, even of kind of like right wing conservatives would be like, yeah, I hate the ATF and the government were nonetheless like, yeah, get those bad guys. They're, they're a crazy, dangerous cult. that's going to, you know, kill people or whatever. Um, and so it's, it's a very tricky situation. I, I just think it, it requires a lot of strategic finesse because you're going up against not just the state itself, but you're going up against all of their, you know, uh, gophers in, in the media. Yeah, you're trying not so, to be dragged into the court, but you're also trying not to lose. Like the most important place not to lose the war is the court of public opinion. You know, yeah. and I think there is methodical planning when this is successful. Um, you, if you look back at like Rosa Parks not sitting down on the bus, that wasn't that wasn't something that just happened. Right, right. That wasn't something that just happened. That was planned, and it's like we want this to go to court, and we think we'll win. Um, right. Here in Dallas, when we when we had our brief period of lockdowns, there was a hairdresser chick. Is that what you were going to talk about, right? Yep. The and single like, mom hairdresser. And she went, she she's was? going to do it anyway, and she had she required masks and all, but it was before that was even acceptable, and they ended up throwing her in jail. Well, I guarantee you, she had an attorney on standby. And, and they went through multiple times before they arrested her. They came and said, well, you can't do this. And she said, well, I'm going to do this. Every media piece done on her, like there was perfect angles, perfect lighting. Her hair as a hairdresser was perfect. Her clothing was perfect, right? This was all – and this, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it was all planned. And then, you know, she ends up in jail, and the freaking lieutenant governor's like, I'll pay her bail. I kind of think there was some back end going on there. And it turns out like a couple months later, she announced she's running for state Senate. Uh, right? And, and, and people will say, well, see, it's all rigged up. No, I'm not going to though that. That's how you do it. Yeah. That's how you do it. And how many shutdowns have you had since then, Jack? None. None. No more. <laughs> no more. And it gave, I think it was maybe coordinated with the governor's office because the governor kind of sort of didn't want to do it. The lieutenant governor definitely didn't want to do it. And it gave them like cover fire, you know, like where they could stand on something. And, and then, you know, I'm, I'm helping this lady. Oh, you guys like it? Okay. I, I mean it for everybody. Right. You know, and that's, you have to understand, like you're trying to manipulate politicians here. So you have to, it sounds, we don't want to do their sleazy crap, but we kind of have to, don't we? Yeah, but yeah. how how far do you go into the dragons den chasing dragons before you become a dragon, right? I don't know. Like that's why they say all politicians are corrupt because you you have to play a game, you have to play ball, whatever it means. It means that you're sacrificing your uh, authenticity. You know, you're oh. you're sacrificing your 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 goodness. Well, well, the way I see it is sort of analogous to the way, um, like you would look at a successful guerrilla you know, movement on the violent side, obviously not civil disobedience, but like successful guerrilla movements win by fighting the war that they want to fight. 
and yeah. not fighting the war on the terms of their big conventional enemy with all the heavy-duty firepower and everything like that. They figure out a way to fight a war their way in a way that the big, you know, it's the whole idea of David and Goliath, and, and I would uh, suggest everybody maybe go read uh, everybody listening go go, go read um, Mal- Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath if you've never read it. Um, there's a lot of interesting uh, takeaways in in that book, but you know the idea is you don't you play your game that you can win that they can't, and not try to play their game. And so you know now that still means you might have to make. Uh, choices that are kind of ruthlessly pragmatic and, and strategic, but, you know, you can still do those things and maybe feel a little bit like, oh, I'm kind of manipulating the optics a little bit, but like, if that's as bad of a moral transgression as you commit, is just sort of like manipulating the optics and the narrative a little bit, you're still way on the moral high ground. Yeah. Relative to the thugs and gangsters and whatever that you're trying to, you know, yeah. uh, make back off about something. All you do is you're putting the camera where you get your best angle and you're putting the lighting in the right spot. Well, this, this segues perfectly into a question for those listening. Do you think there's a place for violence in civil disobedience type Y for yes or N for no in the comments? And um, I mean, CJ, you kind of brought you, you stressed the peaceful side. But what do you think about that? Is there a place for violence? I think there's a place for violence in resisting authority in certain situations. But I just think that once you do that, you've crossed the line and you're no longer doing civil disobedience. You might be doing, you know, you still might be in the right. You still mm-hmm. might have a case for, for what you're doing uh, in terms of violent resistance. But I just think it's no longer under the category of civil disobedience. I think you've no, sort of crossed that becomes, category. Yeah, then it becomes uncivil determination. Yeah, then it, then it becomes, you know, actual insurgency instead of insurgency by other means. Jack. You're muted. If it's unplanned, if it's uncoordinated, if it's not done with calculation, then we end up with a January 6th. We get a half-naked guy with buffalo horns on his head, taking a crap or whatever on Nancy Pelosi's desk. We get some vandalism and some violence. We get actually the most violence actually committed by the state. But all of a sudden, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to the United States since Pearl Harbor. In fact, it's worse than that. Right? And that's how the state's able to spin it. So... In this thing, like once you go to violence, you, you, you have to, if you're going to do it, you either have to do it because you're defending yourself and you don't have an alternative. So that's my basic standard for violence. If you break in my house and I think you can kill me and I shoot you in the face, I don't have a problem with it, right? I don't want to, but I, I feel okay with that. If, if you break in my house and it's, it's a clear day and the lights are on and I realize you're completely unarmed, I'm going to start with at least maybe pointing the gun at you. I am not going to just shoot you because I can, right? I, I believe that violence needs to be sufficient to halt aggression. And any further than that, you're now the bad guy, right? Now, if I can't tell how big of a threat you are, and I'm I, and I come down on the side of, like, some dude broke in my house in the middle of the night. I don't know what the hell's going on. I got my wife here, my grandkids here. I'm sorry, you died? Okay, so I think we kind of have to, on some levels, be that way with the state up until we get to a point where we feel like, well, that's actually happening everywhere at once now. And, and then I think you are into the realm of insurrection, revolution, et cetera. And if you say that's wrong, okay, then, well, that means every revolution that ever happened was wrong, right? If there's no place for violence, then the freaking underground that stood up against the Nazis that picked up the guns that the United States dropped on the ground 
that were one-shot 45s and shot Nazis in the back of the head, they were wrong, right? So I think there is a place for violence, but when that was going on, there was a plan. We're coming, right? We're coming. There's a war going on. We're coming, and you're choosing a side. Maybe you chose the right side, maybe the wrong side, but you, you see what I mean? There was a coordination to that. If you start doing shit like that, without that level of planning, coordination, et cetera, I think you're going to lose, and I don't think that justified or not, right or wrong, Making an action where you know you're not helping your side is a bad idea. That's Sun Tzu's art of war, right? You don't fight the battle unless victory is assured. And I think a lot of people that are calling for violence in this, you notice they're not doing it. Yeah. They want you to do it. We should string them up, whatever. But they're sitting in their little house, you know, in their mom's basement eating a hot pocket. They're not out doing any of this crap. They're just trying to instigate it. You got to be really careful when people start talking that way. And most of what Alex Jones says, I find to be batshit, moonbat crazy. Totally. But I heard him one time say something that actually stuck with me, and I thought that was one of the smartest things I've ever heard anybody say, especially him. And he was like, if you got a guy in your, in your group and he's, he's talking about violence and going out and doing this, he's either a fed or an idiot, and either way, you don't want to listen to him. And I was like... Yeah. Wow. Okay. Right well, broken on, clock. Alex. Truck twelve, man. Well, the, there it is. You know, he got it. The and other that's a, place that's where whole... violent ha- violence happens is on the other side, right? Like Tiananmen Square. Yeah. Where you're peacefully protesting, and then violence is enacted on you, and we see that all the time. The, you know, when 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 yeah. we stand up and we have the moral high ground, the only answer they have. Is to hurt, is and to scare, and yep. to pressure. That's that's the tools they have is to bully. Here's an interesting comment we have right now from Christine. The non-aggression principle includes the right to protect yourself. I agree, yeah. but you still have to use some calculation, don't you think? Like, do I do I use this right right now to protect myself, or will it actually make the situation worse? Right. Right. Like you see what I'm saying? And I think that's always situationally dependent. And we always have to be thinking like I think part of what makes us think this way. Most of us, I think, who here is an armed citizen? And when I say armed, I mean, you like carry a gun with you when you go outside. Right. Yeah. Okay. You have to think you have to think this way because all of a sudden anywhere you go, if there's a conflict, it could be a gun. It is. There is it going to be there will be a gun in the conflict. Right. So if, if I'm driving down the street and Xavier's an asshole and he cuts me off and neither one of us has a gun and, and I like he cuts me off and I, I like push him off the road and then we get out and we fight like it's not a gun fight because there is no gun. If he's a complete dick after he cuts me off, blames me, chases me down, pushes me off the road and I'm trying to avoid the fight, but I have a gun. There's a gun in that fight. So I already have to be thinking, do I escalate this violence And the more you operate as an armed citizen, the more you have to have your head in that game, right? And you have to be the same way with this to me. Like, if I escalate the the, the violence with the state, even if I don't carry a gun, there will be a gun in the fight. In fact, many guns and biting dogs and tear gas and other people with guns and clubs and rubber bullets and who the hell knows what else, right? And what we've learned about the state over the years, they will use anything to win. There is no, like, they will keep using whatever amount of force is necessary. If you sold cigarettes out on the street in New York, they will choke you to death 
because you resist it. And yeah. so you have to be very careful when you, when you, you know, pop that pin on that grenade, you, if you can't put it back in, you can't tape it back up. It's going to go off. Yeah. Our darker skin brothers and sisters in the sixties, you know, used nonviolence and civil disobedience to earn what should have been a God given right, right? They had to have it recognized culturally. Um, and to do so, they had to administer and demonstrate their virtue, even though they shouldn't have had to, but they had to demonstrate their virtue as in some ways, and this is kind of twisted, but to, to, to demonstrate their value and worth that they belong at an equal class of citizenship, which should have been from the get, right? Like history, all that. CJ can speak to that, but. None of them became violent. But then you had Malcolm, right? And he was like, let's get, let's get up in their faces. Let's actually get a, let's, let's take the fight to them, right? And those guys disagreed. And there's a lot of nuance here that I don't know specifically, but, um, but then you saw the bad guys or the state all over Malcolm and he realized that he was a pawn in a game, getting people to become aggressive. It was like he was being used to goad the rest. And that, that, that's when he bowed out and that's when they popped him, right? Well, so, I'm sorry. No, so so the basics here is that, like like Jack said, is if, if you're going to be aggressive, it has to be fucking Jedi shit. You know, it's like you're defending children, you're defending people who are defenseless. Uh, maybe even your own life, maybe not. You know, depending upon your your spiritual beliefs. But you know, here you are. You like there is no going back from it. So if you do it, like Jack said, you have to be calculating. It. This CJ, makes me there... think of the Institute for Justice's approach to the, that's a nonprofit that basically sues the government to win cases to enforce constitutional uh, just liberties, right? Yeah. They they were famous for the um, the the Kilo case where for property rights, basically where somebody's house was being um, like through civil for, forfeiture taken by the state to be then repurposed as a business park that would bring more revenue, tax revenue, so it's for the greater good. One of the things they've always done when they decide to take on a case is look at the optics and make sure the moral high ground and the story is on their side. It seems like with civil disobedience, we have to do the same thing. And it makes me want to ask a question to CJ, which is, what is your favorite example of civil disobedience that, that you've learned about and kind of dug into that was successful? Well, there's a few, but one of my favorites is the movement in Poland in the 70s and 80s known as Solidarity, which is really interesting because it kind of evolved over time from something that started off very limited to something that then got big. Because with civil disobedience there's kind of like two categories. There's civil disobedience where you're not trying to undermine the legitimacy of the entire system. You're just trying to get them to back off on one particular, you know, nasty policy or law or whatever it is. And then there's civil disobedience where you're trying to undermine the entire system. Like you're seeking to ultimately overthrow an entire regime. And um, solidarity started off as just like these, you know, blue collar workers in uh, Gdansk in Poland, in Danzig, basically doing like typical labor union stuff where they're like, hey, we just want better conditions, some more reasonable pay, that kind of thing. We're having a hard time, you know, paying our bills and whatever. And then 
as the regime tried to snuff them out, and, and remember, too, this is in the context of a communist government that claims we're on the side of the worker. We're all about the workers. We're trying to create the workers' paradise. And then, oh, imagine how much it hurts their leg- their legitimacy if actual real workers are like, yeah, this sucks. We want to go on strike because this sucks, right? And so uh, unlike so many you know, socialist and communist movements, these were like actually the workers themselves. And they started off – you know, protesting and striking for these very kind of like nuts and bolts, bread and butter issues like, hey, we like a little bit better pay and conditions and whatever. And then as the regime tried to crack down, they um, they kind of got more support. It's the classic sort of jujitsu of the successful, um, you know, the successful civil disobedience movement is like you turn the state's strength against itself in a way. Right. And um, it didn't take long before solidarity was able to seize the moral high ground and sort of sees the narrative and the legitimacy. And, you know, there's a lot of factors going on there that you have to think about strategically if you're trying to do something like this, which is things like um, the the Communist Party in Poland was very much anti-Catholic. Most Polish people were very devoutly Catholic. And so, you know, Solidarity and, and the guy who came to lead it, Lech Walesa, they were able to use that and use the support of just luck that there was a Polish Pope at the time and use that to turn much of the country on their side against the communists. And then they were also able to play on the legitimacy of, Hey, they say they're for the workers paradise. Those communists we're actually the workers. And we're telling you the communists are not our friends. Right. And so, um, you know, ultimately it leads, and it takes a lot of time and, you know, the leaders of solidarity had to put up with going to jail. Right. So you have to ask yourself, you know, what are you willing to do? Um, They went to jail repeatedly. They had to deal with, you know, secret police surveillance and harassment constantly for over a decade. But, you know, ultimately they were able to get the communist regime in Poland uh, to get overthrown peacefully. And, you know, I'm sure the Polish government since then has its problems. It's a state. I'm sure they do things that all of us wouldn't agree with. But, like, you're crazy if you're not saying that Poland since, like, 1990 isn't a way better off place than it was under the boot of communism. right? Right. And, you know, if they had just gone out in the street and started, like, punching cops and trying to fight with the secret police and whatever, they would have just been snuffed. And much of the rest of the population of the country would have been like, yeah, these are a bunch of, you know, troublemakers, violent rioters, whatever. And like, good, I'm glad the cops are out there restoring law and order. Right. You know, you know that 89 to 90 time period was a very interesting time to observe civil disobedience with with the fall of the Eastern Bloc, just um, uh, I remember in high school, just people, there was the barrier between East and West and people said, screw you. We're going to jump in our cars and we're going to cross it. And what are you going to do about it? If everybody crosses it, and we're talking about, you know, the Berlin wall where people got shot. Like full on machine gun down. All of a sudden it's like, well, if everybody's, you know, crossing the wall what are we going to do we're just going to shoot everybody and and that was a strength in numbers but that was a culmination of years of it and, of and also it was important in that particular context that by then gorbachev was in charge of the soviet government because mm-hmm. previously when warsaw pact states would try to break away from communism or break away from soviet control the soviets like with uh, hungary in the 50s with czechoslovakia in the 60s they would just send in the red army and that'd be that, right? Mm-hmm. But the, it was just a matter of, you know, number one, the Soviet system was becoming more bankrupt. 
And number two, luck of the draw, Gorbachev, who was a fairly decent human being, despite, you know, believing that communism might be able to be made workable, um, he kind of let it be known that like, hey, we're not going to use brute force to hang on to our empire from now on. And so that gave way more people in East Germany a feeling of, hey, I might actually get away with this. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if if East Germans tried to flee en masse when Stalin was still in charge, or even when Brezhnev was still in yeah. charge in, in like the 70s, the Red Army would have just gone in there with all the tanks they needed and would have ended it. So, Do you think they would have if the economics had been the same, though? If you had, let's say Lenin was like much younger man and was around uh, in 1989, but mm-hmm. the Soviet state itself was in economic collapse, but you had the will of a Lenin or a Khrushchev or something like I, that. Do you think they would have actually done that when their own, like, was it really Gorbachev being a nice guy? Or was it like, we got our own problems right now, like Lithuania right. is going, right. Ukraine well, is gone, like, it, we, we it's, can't, you know what it's, I mean? It's, it's kind of both, I think. And it's sort of like two things coming together simultaneously and people realizing it and taking advantage of it, right? Because if you look at North Korea right now, North Korea is in way worse economic shape than the Soviet Union ever even came close to. Yeah, but they're not trying to control Cambodia, right? There's a difference between having your own shit screwed up and, like, from my place here, I'm going to exert force on the far ends of my empire. It's much easier to just hold on to your one little clump of dirt. And by the way, they got China has to, like, no matter how bad they get, China loves the fact that they're sitting there. I don't know if that's a good analogy. Well, I think it, it shows that, like, a horrific economic position alone. I mean, people in North Korea, like, don't have electricity. They're eating pine that's, cones and each other. Yeah. And so if, if just economic misery alone was enough to make it possible to overthrow a regime or for civil disobedience to work, then, you know, North Korea would have collapsed a long time ago. So I, I think there's a, there's a certain, there's a certain amount of ruthlessness and brute force that can overcome, you know, even like a regime being, being weak economically, I would say. But, but so the brute force, right? So if you have, if you have a population that has been subservient and gotten to a point where they've lost their morale and they don't feel like they are righteous enough to stand up for themselves, A, and that the, the majority of the population is self-serving to the point where they're like, they don't have compassion for any other human beings because, A, they don't have it, but also because they're just trying to survive. There's a mixture there in, in that, that prevents such a thing from happening, which allows sort of Mordor to continue festering. But when somebody stands up that's bright, that's righteous, that feels good, that feels like I should stand up for myself, whether I die or not, that inspires something in others to recognize that quality in themselves. And if, but no, if, if the population as a whole has been subdued to such a point that nobody's willing to do that or be that, uh, hair cutter who decides to go strike a deal with the, the government and, you know, take one from the team essentially and go into jail, whatever, like people have to be willing to do that suffering, right? There, there's a combination of ruthlessness and competence in a regime that can make civil disobedience a completely useless tactic. Like no amount of civil disobedience was likely to undermine Stalin's regime. Right. right. Because right. he um, he had the ruthlessness, but he also was very competent. Now, I don't mean competent in the sense of like he ran a great system. But he also was a, had enough loyalists. But 
Yeah, yeah without exactly. the loyalists, that ruthlessness doesn't do anything, mm-hmm. right? That, that's 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 what I mean by competence. I mean competence in maintaining power, right? Yeah. Not competence in like your government's doing good stuff and helping people, but competence in maintaining power. And in a way, the North Korean regime, if you set aside all morality and just kind of like put on a psychopath hat, the North Korean regime is absolutely brilliant and competent in doing what it does, right? Which is um, barely surviving. But but I think what X, X's the point hold on I think X's point though is you had seventy years of programming in these people like I saw this incredible documentary about this eye doctor that went to North Korea and he did thousands of surgeries in like twenty days giving people their sight back and here this old man has his bandages taken off and the doctor that did the surgeries like right there like sitting at the front of the thing. The guy walks past him and thanks a picture of the leader on the wall. It no. looked like an episode of The Simpsons, but he was complete. He didn't need, it wasn't even like somebody said, you better go think. Like he wanted to. Like that's where he saw that this came from, that, that Kim Jong-un or Il or whoever was in charge at the time this documentary was made is the we're reason his eyes were cleared. Not the right. doctor that did the surgery was probably risking his ass to be there that long. Be- you know, because he's an American doctor. Because they've been so effective at setting up essentially yeah. a nation that's a giant cult. And it's a cult that makes most cults look like amateurs. I mean, it makes Jonestown look like, you know, Jim Jones didn't know what the hell he was doing brainwashing people, right? <laughs> so that's what I'm saying when, when, when I say that, like, strategically, there's certain times and places, there's certain situations where civil disobedience just is not not a great tactic. Like, you know, it might be the moral thing right. to do, but it might not be a workable thing. And so, you know, I, I would just urge people thinking about this to think very much about things like uh, strategy and prudence and practicality. Because well, you got to have an end goal, right? Just standing up and screaming, I hate masks, gets you exactly zero steps forward. I mean, look at if, if that's France. your form of z- civil disobedience, right? It's yeah. It, how does it work together to to make the change you want? And what is the change you want? Is it to overthrow the government? Is it to get rid of mask laws? Is it something else? I think when I look at civil disobedience that's that's worked, there's been a, a an emotional change, like emotionally supported change that is the moral high ground that happens as a result of it. However, it's framed, mm-hmm. whether I disagree with the change or agree with it, it's, it's got that story and, and it's, it's a goal that's bigger than just the act itself. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, people who want to use the strategy of civil disobedience need to think about it mostly in terms of like being a drama in a way, because that's, that's like the level that you're trying to fight on. And so you can have all the, the, you know, morality behind you in the world, but if you're doing something that's just gonna, you know, not get anywhere and is just going to cause the vast majority, you gotta think about who your audience is. Yeah. Right? Your audience yeah. is the regular people who are just trying to go to work, just trying to feed their families or whatever it is. And if that's you do something, them. If you do something that can be that can be reasonably portrayed and spun as look at this one crazy Yahoo doing something crazy, aren't you glad we got rid of him or whatever? It doesn't matter if all the morality in the world is on your side, 
right? It's going to just accomplish nothing. Right. And, you know, if, if you're looking to just be a martyr and you don't even care if it accomplishes anything, like knock yourself out. But if your goal is actually like a practical one to have some sort of positive change, you got to really put some thought into who your audience is because anything you do that makes you look like the bad guy or a crazy person or whatever, right, um, is going to be self-defeating. Yep. So we, so two, two things come to mind when you say that. A, I'm just so glad you're here, CJ. I love the historical perspective. I learned something. Thanks. About, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's really great. And it really sparked a good discussion. The, um, like the Buffalo kid, right? It, like Jack said, the guy who put on the Buffalo horns. Great heart. Good kid. He was really a good kid and just became a, a sort of tagline for the whole thing, right? He became the, the spirit of it and like the spirit of it was locked up. And when you say the drama of it, you're right. Like there, any, and it, and, and poor kid, I mean, he's in there and he's still like got no, no, no way to get out. Uh, and all he did was wear some funny clothes and go in there with everybody else. But like they make a, a scapegoat or a, a patsy essentially. Now back to the, the story about like, so what do you guys think about like Standing Rock, for instance? Because that is civil disobedience, right? They, they were not violent in any way, shape or form, but they still got the boot. They essentially got the boot stuck down on them. Now, would you consider that a failure? A failed civil example of failed civil disobedience? In a sense, yeah. Because the the goal was to get the pipeline stopped, and that didn't happen. It happened for a little bit, um, but then. But it did. It did but it did. Stop. Biden shut it down. It never got finished. There's a pipe there, but it doesn't do anything. There's nothing in it, right? Well, so but that wasn't because what? of what they did, but it built social capital in the sense of like there's this story, ongoing story being told, and it's like okay, that's just a white man, you know putting the boot on the on the red man again and, and like that story keeps building and it's there in this in the public consciousness even though they're See, not i don't think anything. i don't think biden would have shut it down had that not happened i also think it was very effective propaganda because if you ask most people you'd say well why did the native americans on that reservation protest this they'd say because they wanted to put a pipeline across their land and if you know the facts they yeah. were not putting a pipeline on their land Right. And, and what they'll say is, well, by the original treaty, they were, they were supposed to include this land. But you didn't argue that for the past hundred years. So I'm right. sorry if you haven't claimed that land in a hundred years, you don't get to do it now. So I thought it was effective propaganda. I, I actually was the evil guy that thought we should have a pipeline from Canada so that the Canadians could send their oil through the pipeline instead of with a ship, you know, and, and that was more dangerous. And until you, until we stop using oil, we need oil. Right. Right. But, I consider it a success because I do not believe the Keystone Pipeline would have been shut down without it. I think that Biden doesn't give a rip about any of this shit. And it was like, but how can I pander? And somebody said, sir, you can pander this way. And he right. said, what ice cream am I eating? No, sign this. Okay. And and boom. And and like, so I think it was a, a dramatic success, no, uh, even though it looked like a failure. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and again, the importance of optics and narrative, right? Because... I mean, just just think about the optics of the U.S. government sending in lots of thugs with guns right. against a bunch of Native Americans. Like, no matter what the actual nitty-gritty details are of the dispute or whatever, that's going to look real bad, right? So um, – and, and keep in mind, too, that most civil disobedience movements that ultimately get successful have a whole lot of what looked like failures originally. True. Like, these things don't usually just happen overnight. It's usually like – 
a decade or a couple of decades of building stuff. And if you just looked at some of the early things, you know, whether you're looking at Gandhi or the, the African-American civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s or whatever, they had a whole bunch of things that would have looked at first glance like failures yeah, that ultimately yeah. kind of snowballed. And um, one one example I wanted to bring up that's kind of interesting is um, everybody, when they're talking about sort of like the theory and history of civil disobedience, they talk about Henry David Thoreau and his famous, you know, essay, Civil Disobedience, which kind of explains sort of philosophically the idea of civil disobedience, right? right. If you actually look at what he did at the time, it was completely useless. He went to jail for one day and then, you know, his rich aunt or whatever supposedly bailed him out. Did it do anything to even slow down the Mexican-American War or the spread of slavery into new Western territories? No. Had it, it was the equivalent of a tree falling in the woods and no one was around for a thousand miles, right? A handful of intellectuals in New England paid attention to what he was doing and that was it. But his because he wrote it down and he did a good job of that, he was able to um, kind of have an influence down through the centuries – to the point where people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King were influenced by what he had to say. Right. Right. And so in the short term, Thoreau's civil disobedience, you know, what he actually did and going to jail for a day protesting the Mexican-American War didn't do anything. Right. Um, but he was able to, whether he meant to do it or not, he was able to then have an influence that maybe didn't affect the particular issue he was taking a stand on, but did influence people later. Uh, who were who were taking a stand on you know other issues in the long count right you have to take a big perspective like beyond the human life one lifespan and say this affected society in such a profound way because it inspired Martin Luther King inspired yeah. Gandhi so so you know if if you're thinking about getting in, engaged in civil disobedience you know another thing I would I would urge people to just kind of consider is you know are you trying to do something kind of immediate or short term or are you trying to do something that's maybe more medium to long term and maybe kind of craft your strategy accordingly. Accordingly. Yeah. yeah. When I look at some, some recent examples of civil disobedience that, that, cause I've been doing the rogue food conference thing and that, that ends up being civil disobedience. The short term wins are, are made by people who have a sense of humor, who can read and understand the regulations and think of ways around them, do it in a public way and have enough charisma that nobody wants to really see them arrested. And then the civil servants in air quotes don't want to arrest them. Right. But I question what the long-term success of that is, if it doesn't have a long tail or relate to a long goal. Right. I'd, I'd much rather see some initial failures and long-term change towards freedom, of course, because I'm biased towards freedom than a short-term win that then gets upended the other way, which is, I mean, I grew up in Oregon and that's what would happen to, to freedoms there is you would win something and there would be a small change in, in code or regulation or enforcement. And then it would go way the other way because it would be framed as this horrible thing for the environment or whatever, by by the opposing forces whose goals are not the environment. Their goals are to control every aspect of that population. But yeah, see, it, that, that, that brings me to my favorite civil disobedience that I think was successful. I don't even think people realize it was civil disobedience. And it would be c- cannabis. 
Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, cannabis was to me a textbook and it wasn't even organized. It was just such a natural thing. The number yeah. one aspect of civil disobedience is noncompliance. Right. Right. So people just it, cannabis is illegal. You know, marijuana is legal. I'm going to smoke pot anyway. And and then people use that kind of status jujitsu to where like, well, if my state says that anything under an ounce is a fine instead of a jail sentence, I'm never going to have more than an ounce on me at any time. Right. And if right. the cops stop me and go, do you got pot on me? I'm here. There it is. And I'm going to have a, a cop that probably smoked pot at least in college, like writing me a ticket for a couple hundred bucks or so, right, that I'm going to pay. And he knows this is stupid. I shouldn't be doing this. This is not Al Pacino here. And if you watch, if you look back, it started to creep into like pop culture. Yeah. Right. If you go back to like, like movies and stuff from the seventies, like, you know, the bad guy, even the eighties, right? Karate kid, right? The, the, the bad kids, right? Johnny's smoking a doobie. He's supposed to be violent. <laughs> He's smoking a doobie in the, in the John, right? That's what bad people do. They smoke doobies. And, mm -hmm. and like it creeped into where like you had movies with like DE agents and like they had a girlfriend and the girlfriend's like, Well, he's smoking pot. You need to talk to him. Talking about their own kid. He goes, nobody dies from pot, right? Like that kind of shit, like creeped in, and it just slowly yeah. eroded it, and eventually became this big movement, and you know, either legalization or decriminalization and all. But there's almost nowhere left in the country that anybody's going to go to jail for possessing a small amount of marijuana, right? Like, right. and that was one without anybody saying, "Hey, right, guys, let's all get together." And do this. People just did what was natural, which was what you were talking about in the Coles Broke Food. Adapting to it. Because the way you get the long-term win isn't that you come up with this way that small farmers can do this. It's you get a whole bunch of people eating the food that you're not supposed to have, and then yeah. all of a sudden it becomes personal. Wait a minute. Why are you taking this away from me? Because what, what happened with cannabis, whether anybody wants to admit it or not, we got to the point where it was socially acceptable enough that everybody knew somebody in their life that was stoned once in a while or often, that didn't bother anybody, that didn't cause anybody any trouble whatsoever, and instead of talking about some nebulous druggie, you were talking about your buddy Brian, right? And yeah. like you're like, but Brian doesn't bother anybody. He's stoned all day, doesn't bother anybody, never caused anybody any trouble. I don't want Brian to go to jail. And I think a lot of times, like, swinging that public opinion is making people realize this evil thing doesn't actually cause you any trouble. And and having some, even if you're not engaging in it, knowing someone that is that you don't want anything bad to happen to. And, and, you, and you don't want nothing bad to happen to. It's not like if, you're, if, if X was using heroin, I want X to stop using heroin, not because heroin's illegal, because I believe heroin will destroy your life, right? But if, if X is smoking pot, like, we might share some. Right. Like, I don't want him to I don't want him to stop using pot because I think it's going to hurt him. If, if there's any reason to be, you know, back in the day, I might have thought you're going to get in trouble. Maybe you need to be right. a little bit smarter, or use a little, have a little bit less on you. Something. But like getting that public opinion to the point where it's like we don't want this messed with. If you think about like the Black Lives Matter protests, this is a complete opposite of the kind of civil disobedience, disobedience we're talking about. We, we don't want people out burning shit down, smashing people, throwing frozen bottles of water at people. You know, we don't want that to happen. We don't want people setting things on fire. They did it, and by and large, they got away with it because they had the media on their side. Yeah. Right? So that shows you the importance, right, to me, of having 
support in mass. And until you have it, you know, you, you have to figure out how to get it instead of worrying about like, are we violent or not? Like, how do you get, how do you get the average person to just go, leave them the fuck alone? Right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what you're looking for is where the average person goes, leave them the fuck alone. Why? My wife, like, she used to believe everything the TV said years and years ago when it came to like foreign policy and all. And now when we're like messing around with other countries, she's like, why can't we leave people the fuck alone? Right. And I'm like, you've graduated. That's, that's, that's what we're looking for, isn't it? Yeah. I think oh, that, I think that, I think that there's that civil disobedience going on now with masks. The idea that everybody has to wear these, you know, face diapers that are ineffective and demonstrate your gullibility and your herd mentality and your weakness of spirit and all of these things, you know, the, the narrative, right back to CJ's point, it's like, you have to control the narrative. And right now we don't, it's a battle between certain and, and the media tips the scales in such a big way. And what we have to be able to do is tell the story of how dangerous these things are, but we're getting canceled left and right on different social media platforms. So how in today's day and age, right? Um, I actually was inspired by this woman named Tori. Uh, I, 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 you know, the, the same episode I, I blew up, uh, Freedom Cells in the Survival Podcast, I talked about Tori says she's organizing a campaign of thousands of people across the country to mail, like, full on letters, written letters, printed out, envelope, everything. And that those are going to legislators, they're going to generals, they're going to military personnel and holding them accountable in a way that's intimate. Right. It's different if somebody's yelling at you with a megaphone. It's different if somebody's, you know, recording a message and leaving on the answering machine. You're distant from that. But you pick up a letter, which is so novel these days, and they're actually reading it. Right. CJ, CJ, I saw you put your finger up. Is that you want to say something? No, actually, I was just scratching my face. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I can get ranting and I don't want to. So, you know, the what she's doing, I think, is an effective form of very civil disobedience in the sense that. Um, and, and she twisted the words disappointing. I am disappointing my leaders. I am disappointing my legislators. I'm disappointing my representatives. I am literally removing their appointment as this representative of me. I'm declaring my sovereignty and saying, you no longer have that position in my mind in any effective way. And I think that that mix with Gandhi's sort of, uh, you know, non-compliance, you know, the civil non-compliance, it, it just has to have the right kind of numbers for it to be effective and how to tell that story properly. And I don't think I, anybody's told it effectively enough. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I just, I'm thinking, let's think of some examples that have been ineffective in history. Like what Damn, example I effective. Okay. <laughs> comes civil, because you can learn from why was it ineffective, right? So what, what example comes to mind of an ineffective act of civil disobedience as a failure? Uh, Tiananmen Square 30 years ago or Hong Kong more recently. And honestly, I've been racking my brain the last couple of days, you know, before coming on to talk to you all about this, trying to figure out, could I think of a way in which civil disobedience could have been successful either at Tiananmen Square or in Hong Kong recently. And honestly, I'm drawing a blank Mm -hmm. because I don't know that given the situation that those unfortunate people are in, that there's there's any kind of a good answer. And I know that that's sort of a downer and a black pill, but I don't know. Why did they fail? Because the regime was willing to do whatever it takes to snuff it out. 
and they were competent, again, not in the sense of being like good rulers, but in the sense of being good at doing what is needed to be done to stay in power, right? They were competent in that sense, and they had enough of their own population either actively still on their side or at least apathetic enough to be like, hey, the people in charge are the people in charge. And so the the only thing I can think of, and, and I'm not as familiar, honestly, with, with sort of the details of the Hong Kong situation more recently, mm-hmm. and probably it'll be many years, if ever, before we know quite exactly what all was going on there behind the scenes and underground and whatever. But um, just looking at Tiananmen Square and what I do know of that, I think that one of the problems there might have been um, not doing enough groundwork ahead of time. Like, I think my my understanding is that those were somewhat spontaneous, that it was one of those, like, sort of snowball things where, you know, one group started yeah. to protest on a smaller scale, and then people spontaneously came out to protest. And that can be effective if the regime is either um, not so ruthless or if it's not so competent or both. Like that, mm-hmm. that, that kind of thing happened in some of the Eastern Bloc countries where it was somewhat spontaneous. Yeah, Ukraine. But, Ukraine, mm-hmm. that's what happened to Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. But if, if the regime is ruthless and competent, you need to really do a lot of pre-work, like maybe even a decade doing the, the, the work of, of sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, propaganda, uh, in, in a positive sense here of trying to get out, you know, your Marketing. narrative. It, there you go. There's the more positive, more positive version, right? But yeah. trying, trying to get a greater percentage of the population on your side before you go walking out into Tiananmen Square to try and, you know, stare down the tanks. So my, my, my best, my best hypothesis right now is that that failed because there wasn't enough preliminary groundwork done. Was well, there the just way. not even enough will? Among the people, it looks big to you, but if 80% of the people actually had in China like the way China is. Exactly. Like, are you going to be able to change it? If you look at, so can it be that what looks like civil disobedience is too much coming from without? Like, a recent example, complete abject failure of civil disobedience, Afghanistan. If you think about it, the Afghan army, all the people that cooperated with the Americans, that was a, a willful act of civil disobedience against the ruling body which before we went in there and bombed the shit out of everything was the Taliban, right? And then the minute we left, it was a goat fuck on steroids, right? Like, because the will within wasn't there to stand against it. And so I think Tiananmen, it just wasn't there. I think Hong Kong, I think those guys, there was a lot of people, and they risked a lot, and a lot of them got disappeared. A lot of them probably ended up dead. I think they really felt that, that the West would come to their aid, and the West was like, Meh. "Sorry, no, we're not." Jay, what were you going to say? Well, with Tiananmen Square, I, one of the things I know that happened was most of the demonstrators were relatively affluent, educated, urban people, and the vast majority of China's population isn't that. And one thing they did. When they were, because they let the demonstrations go for a while and then they were like, all right, that's it. You're done. And when they flipped that switch, one of the moves they did that I think was really important was they brought in soldiers who were like rural soldiers from totally different areas of this giant country than Beijing. And so it would be like if you had, um, I don't know, giant pro freedom demonstrations in like one particular American state and 
the feds just brought in, you know, let's say you had, you had like giant pro freedom demonstrations. I know this is a fantasy, but in New York city and let's say like the red states were not at all in, in uh, sympathy with what was going on there. And let's say you just brought in a bunch of federalized national guard from Texas and Utah and whatever, who have no sympathy with these, these, you know, New York pretty boy, city boy types. Um, and, and not only that, see them as traitors, um, you know, that's a common move that empires do, by the way. Like when the British were running India, they would recruit troops from one area of India and then use them to hold power in a different area on the other side of the country. So or even another part of the empire, right? Too, you bring though, right? In- it's not just geography. There's a class difference if you're hitting people who are less affluent to come in right. and deal with the affluent upstarts. There, there's a class protesting. difference. There's a class difference. There's a cultural difference, all that. And so, you know, this is one of the things that can sometimes make like giant, complicated, multi-ethnic empires harder to, to play this way because um, they have the capability to bring in troops from another corner of the empire who have no real feeling of sympathy or solidarity with maybe whoever's demonstrating or resisting or whatever. And so, again, that kind of like preliminary groundwork of getting more of the people sympathetic to what you're going to do is like really important because otherwise, especially in a giant, you know, state or empire, they can probably find people from somewhere else, you know, another part of the place that are not at all sympathetic to you just because they're a totally different class. Um, maybe even a different ethnicity, certainly a different culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it wasn't civil disobedience, but it's exactly what happened with hurricane Katrina. We had all these people with their, their homes damaged, looting going on and whatever. And the moron uh, running as uh, the governor at the time of New, uh, uh, of Louisiana said, we're going to have, uh, seize the guns. Yeah. Now, if you'd have sent oh, Louisiana that. sheriff's deputies in to seize the guns in the area surrounding New Orleans while all this was going on, they would have said, go screw. But they brought in all these police and force, uh, law, police and law enforcement from all over the country, and you got somebody from a, a, a Massachusetts state trooper that's a decent guy. He thinks he's helping, and he's told go take everybody's guns. Well, they're not allowed to have freaking guns like this anyway, where I'm from. Like he doesn't even think right, right. that what you're doing is there's no authority to do this. This doesn't exist. And they went in and they did it. You know, um, so that that tactic. They didn't really have time to think about it. I think that was just it kind of happened and it worked out that way. If you have time to think about it, like CJ saying, yeah, that's a very effective tactic. You bring in and, – and they did this, like, especially the British Empire. They were masters of this in more than one way. That's why they would take, like, Cooley Indians into Africa as slaves, and then they would take the Africans they had kind of pressed into service, but they made them like the senior slaves over the Cooley Indians that were building the railroads – because right. justified the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, well, these guys are from, and then they took people from Africa into India and did the same thing. They just swapped them because they knew that it logistically would work. Like, oh yeah, yeah see, we're in charge of our country. They bring these people in. They work for us. The the U.S. government did the same thing in like literally every Indian war uh, yeah. across the entire continent. In yeah. every in every American war against the natives, there were some other natives who were working for the Americans, you know, as auxiliaries and, and, and scouts yep. and whatever. Yeah, and and it's because you know a lot of these tribes had had hostilities with each other for centuries before the white man even showed up, and that's classic imperialism: divide and conquer, divide and rule, right? So you know, at Little Bighorn, I think it was there were like Crow Indians who were on the side of the Americans because the the Sioux, the Lakota, had long been really hard on the crow had been, you know, conquering them and attacking them and, and doing all kinds of damage. And so along comes team America saying, Hey crow, 
we're going to go fight your your uh, ancient enemy, the Sioux, that are doing all this horrible stuff to you all the time. And the crow were like, yeah, okay, we'll help, especially if you're going to pay us too, you know? Yeah. So you, you have to be around. aware of these sorts of things if if you're going to, whether it's, you know, actually violent or if you're going to do a civil disobedience campaign. Like, you've got to be really aware of, of both class and culture mm-hmm. um, in, in figuring out your strategy because – you know, the powers that be will use those things against you. They will find people who feel no sense of, of solidarity with you and, and turn them on you. Yeah, Deborah asked, by what authority does law enforcement from one state nope. have with another state? Um, Jack and I are in conflict. Trying. Got it. I'm more- <laughs> Leave it alone. I got it. Anyway, there you go. um, I'm going to answer it. It's the authority <laughs> you give them. That's 100% it. If you, you give them accept. authority, they have it. It doesn't matter if they officially have it or not. But they right? do officially have it if your governor has granted it and said we're taking aid from another state. That's yeah. That's how that works. You're an officer of the peace, and then you can be detached to another state. It happens yeah. all the time. It happens with law enforcement. It happens with firefighters. It happens with all types of professions. Yeah. Um, that's why, you know, uh, as much as I love some of the status, uh, the, the stand she's taken, you know, Governor Christy Nome sending um, troops to Texas to help secure the Texas border, it's virtue signaling because you're not contributing. I mean, it, and it's not, I'm not attacking Christy. I'm just saying, like, all politicians do it. Like, it, it's just, you, you have to be kidding me. We have more people in Fort Worth than you have in your entire state. You're not contributing to defending the border. But it looks good. But those those personnel that come here, uh, being National Guard, then fall under the command of the Texas governor. So that's two governors making a deal, and that's where they derive that authority from. If you want to say it's when you grant them the authority, that applies to everybody then, right? So turning point, in your opinion, is it time for real civil disobedience? In the chat, say yes or no. And guys, yes or no, and why? Who wants to go first? I'll go first, I guess. The the question is numbers, right? I brought up the mask thing earlier. There are enough people to say no, but then there are equally enough people or at least enough people to make it in question that are saying yes. And when we're talking civil disobedience, like... Things have been moving at such a the, the playing field itself has shaken and changed in such a big way, and I think it goes back to CJ's point. Like you have to think in terms of decades now, right? Children have been indoctrinated to such a high degree to accept socialism and communism as viable, you know, alternatives to the most prosperous country in the world, right? And so we've got like a level of mind control, or at least faulty reasoning and faulty thinking that is backed up with virtue, right? That's why everybody's virtue signaling. It's like, I've got virtue. We're good, but it's a false sense of virtue. And it's so convoluted. And this has been my concern with agorism, libertarianism, or any other, you know, alternative to the the blue red paradigm, you know, are there, is there enough of an organized congruent value system or body or, or culture, right? that people want to stand up enough and have still enough morale to stand up for liberty and truth. Everybody here in this and in our community that listens are all people who take accountability for themselves. They say, my life is valuable to some degree that I'm actually going to get involved in my own life and help determine it. Do we have the numbers? And if so, how do we organize them 
And rather than disobedience to say, you know, I want to resist something. How can we galvanize those people to build something new? Because you can't, you can't, you, you, you naturally uplift or support somebody's stance if you resist them, right? You're, you're validating it at a very charge based magnetic level. And if we just say, you know, fuck all of that. That's why agorism is so cool. It's like, we're going to build something better and we're just going to do it. Right. So I don't even know if civil disobedience is necessary, but I know creative cooperation is. I wonder if it's civil disobedience that Nebraska is actively recruiting nurses with the marketing slogan, you don't have to have the jab, which happened this week. And then I read the article and it's the VA and some other government agency in the VA has been declared that that's not okay. I'm like, how are they doing that? But they're just doing it, right? But is that again, civil disobedience? You're justifying, you're justifying their uh, right to mandate yeah. when they have none, right? Yeah. And that's that's a, people are just sort of like, oh, they're saying we have to do this thing now. Well, I guess we have to do this thing now instead of questioning and being like, no, I think. But my point is, they're using that the opposite of that. If we don't care, yeah, come here. Because we have a nursing shortage. That's a great free market thing. And, and I was like, finally, somebody did it. I was waiting yeah. for that. Uh, CJ, what's your thought on this question? I, I would say morally, it's always okay. It's, it's always a good time for civil disobedience, morally speaking. <laughs> it's always so, a good time. Yeah. I mean, as, as long as, you know, somebody's trying to, to aggress against somebody else, in some way, like then it's always morally fine. Um, I, I guess it comes down to a matter of, of strategy and practicality. And so I guess it depends on what you're trying to do, depending on where you are and what exactly it is that you're, you know, protesting against or trying to get changed. It might make perfect sense strategically right now to do it, but you should choose wisely. Yeah. And, you know, if you're in the middle of New York city and you think that by like, blatantly flaunting all of their crazy restrictions and whatever you're going to get anything positive accomplished in terms of, you know, getting more freedom in New York city, you're probably wasting your time. You're probably, you know, risking getting beaten by cops and, and thrown in jail for something that's never going to happen. And I, I don't think that's something I would do. So, so I would say you have to be very kind of cold blooded and calculating about where are you? Yep. What are you trying to do? What's your possibility of actually accomplishing anything useful Versus what are the potential downsides and, you know, what, what risks are you willing to tolerate? So I don't know. To me, there's no simple answer because it's a very individual question. It's like, how much are you willing to risk having to go through? You know, it's a very different situation if you're like a young person with no dependents. If you're an older person with a bunch of kids and, and maybe even grandkids, then, you know, you got to weigh that in the balance. If you're like, hey, I might go to jail or whatever for, for what I'm about to do. Right. Um, so, you know, I think every individual has to make their own choice um weigh those different you know risks versus potential upsides because i don't think it's a good move to take on a huge amount of risk for something that has very little chance of accomplishing anything meaningful um unless you have like nothing to lose and you're willing to do that and just be you know a martyr even if there's only a tiny percent chance you'll accomplish anything by being a martyr jack you're muted Muted, Jack. I agree with CJ specifically on, um, you know, analyzing the risk versus potential reward. Mm -hmm. And 
So I think we're way past the time for civil disobedience. I, I think that it, it's way past time. And I've been engaging in it for, well, most of my adult life one way or another. Every time we do something they say we're not allowed to do, whether we do it in direct defiance, in um, strategic defiance, or in truly strategic where we're not supposed to do it, but we figured out how to do it and they can't do anything about it. I don't care. Any of those are all civil disobedience. And one person can make a difference if one person is strategic about where and when. So when I realized no one was going to throw me in jail for not wearing a mask, I would walk into a Walmart or whatever with no mask on. And one day I had happened to do this and a clerk came up to me and said, you know, or, you know, store employee, uh, sir, uh, would you like a mask? I said, no, I have one. I'm just not wearing it. And he's like, well, we need you to wear it in our store. And I said, well, I saw one of, and this was true at the time. I, I saw one of your employees over there not wearing a mask. As soon as all your employees are wearing masks, I'll wear a mask and I walked away. And the guy's sitting there thinking, I make $11 an hour. I'm not dealing with this. So they left me alone, right? And I went, whoa, whoa, I just figured something out, right? So I started saying that when it wasn't true, and they're walking around looking for their employee that's not wearing a mask, (laughs) and they're leaving me alone. Now, as I'm walking through the store with a mask, I'm getting two looks. Everybody's seen the terrified look with the mask over the face where you see the eyes, and you can tell this person's horrified by society, and they're glad the mask is there. And you see the other person that's just like, they're near about to roll themselves into another dimension. Well, they look and see you free breathing and they do this. Yep. And I've, I've literally walked through places when we still had a mask mandate. And by the time I walked out of there, 10, 20% of the people in that place took their mask off. Now, every one of those people is now more likely to do that in the future. And I have to say, I think that it was that. And, and that's what it started to happen. And it wasn't me. It was tons of people like me that we got to the point where. The mask mandate in Texas didn't mean nothing anymore. And all of a sudden it was the governor's idea. We're not doing this anymore. Okay. That's a genius thing you got there, Greg. Great, great job. So that's one way you can be like active. I think another way is you don't even have to necessarily break the law or do anything you're not supposed to do or not allowed to do or anything there's any repercussion for to be engaged in civil disobedience. So I came up with this idea about a month ago and I threw it out on social media a couple places. And I've started to see versions of it. I don't know if I had anything to do with it. It's just an idea whose time has come. But I said, well, what we should do is should we should pick like a long weekend, like a Friday through a, a Monday. Nobody do anything. Just don't don't spend a dollar. Don't go anywhere. Just like self-imposed lockdown sort of. Don't go to restaurants. Don't go to stores. Don't buy a gallon of gas. Like the only bill you should be accumulating is probably your electric bill. Right, maybe your Netflix bill, but don't do shit if you're opposed to vaccine passports. And we need to be specific. That's why we're doing it. And I had people say, well, if you do that, it doesn't matter because it's not really going to hurt the businesses. It's not supposed to hurt. And this is this is what we've been talking about with coordination. And this is why it can't be done the way I'm seeing it pop up. It's not supposed to hurt the businesses. It's not supposed to make my favorite restaurant that I go to all the time think, oh, God, I can't make payroll. Mm -hmm. Three days is not going to do that. They're going to be okay. What it's supposed to make them do is go, this is what it looks like when people that will not comply can't come to my restaurant. We're talking about a swing in public opinion here to where the restaurant owners go, no, 
so you you make it to where the business owners are pushing back. We don't want this because right now the business owners are like, well, we'll do whatever you tell us to do because we have to because we don't want to hurt. Right. Well, make them see before it happens. What does it look like? If what does it look like when forty percent of the population is not allowed to buy from you? What does that look like? And it's not because it's the pandemic, right? It's because it is the government. So delineate that. So to me, for that to work, we would have to then say, put up a, a simple website. You register. I'm willing to participate. You don't set a date. You kind of do it like Free State Project did. Like once, I think that took too long, and that's one of the things that's hurt them. But you know, once we reach the number, then we set the date, and then we do it. Because if you have two hundred thousand people, that sounds like a big deal across the United States with three hundred thirty million. No one will notice it's it. Not so a big deal. You, you yeah. got to get to a point where you have like twenty, thirty, forty million people that say, "I'm in," and yeah. then you say, "Okay, it's going to be this date to this date." You have three weeks to get your shit together, and you've committed, and you're in. And I think, like, if you're going to do something, that's the kind of thing to do right now. But it has to be coordinated because if you don't coordinate it, it's just some asshole. Like somebody hears what I said, and then they put out a thing that says, "On November fourth, we're not going." No one's going to do that. I've been seeing shit like that since it started. Yeah. It has to be coordinated. It has to be coordinated. And it has to be all fifty states. Yeah. And it has to hurt in the states where it's less likely to have as many supporters, or it's yeah, not going to like Cali. It's not going to go. Like yeah, right? but coordinated. You need like people. It has to, to be open too. Like just because you got the vaccine doesn't mean you can't participate. Because there's, right. I think that we're missing this. There are shitloads of people that got yeah. the vaccine that are not pro mandate, and they didn't yeah. even want the vaccine. Like one guy I know, it's a fellow podcaster. We had a little bit of debate in social media, and then finally, I'm like, dude. Just be honest. You travel internationally. You're you're justifying the decision that you think vaccines might help with the fact that if you didn't get the vaccine, you can't travel internationally. And he was like, "Well, yeah, yeah." Okay, so that guy's not on board with having to show a passport to go to the delicatessen in New York City, so, right? We take a week off of spending money, or a week, a week off of spending money. Maybe a weekend. Just just let all the business owners who will be impacted by this decision see what does it look like. Black Friday would be great. Ooh, I don't go out anyway, right? And yeah, no like, Cyber dude, Monday dude, shit dude. either. Like, we you don't buy shit online. You don't order shit from Amazon. You don't it's hurt do my coffee anything. business. But yeah, <laughs> you don't you could do this. Like, and it's not like an unloose the goose thing. It's just a thing. Like you know, uh, no whatever the title is, no no mandates. Period or dot com, whatever. Fuck off Friday. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. Fuck off <laughs> Buy your shit on Saturday. Yeah. Like, you know, it's just, it would just be Pat like Rinaldi this. Is... Fitz does that. She says, don't use any cards on Friday because if everybody yeah. decides to use cash, then it'll slow down the march towards totalitarian blockchain ownership of everybody. See, but do you think right? that, do you think that matters? Do you think anybody's going to do that? Like, I, I think you need something that's part of what we're talking about tonight. You need simple, easy to understand and you got to know why. Because like I said, my number one objection had been, well, it won't really hurt the businesses. I don't want, I don't do boycotts. I'm not a boycott person. Like, let's all boycott yeah. Xavier because his hair is stupid. Like, I don't do that, right? Like, what I think we do is we need to say, this is, this is who you're fucking over if you allow this. See, and yeah. these are the people that tip your waitresses. These are the people that buy your freaking, you know, t-shirts. These are the people that spend the money with, and this is, to be clear, you gotta be like, 
and this is why it has to be clear that everybody's involved in our states. This does not mean stay home and order fucking DoorDash, right? Because then you right. fucked it up. You have to be like, we are not participating in the economy. Ribeye nights at my house on the grill. That's what that is. Yeah, and I think it might. I think three days might be better than a week because I think you'll get greater full yeah. participation. Because yeah. if they do this and you're not willing to get a vaccine, you're not going to choose to not do these things, right? You're going you to not be able to. able to. So what you're showing the business is this is what it looks like if they get their way. And in some ways, I feel like, is it even worth it in this country? Because I feel like we've given the fuck up. I look over at what's going on in France, and they're like wheeling out effigies of the freaking guillotine and shit. Right? <laughs> the freaking guy checking the door at the restaurant that's required to check. Because France has basically vaccine passports. And they have the guy at the door, and his instructions are basically to do this. Like, So you bring your phone to me, and I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, like they don't even look at it. And that's their that's their protest is they're just letting people in. Like so, I think like that you had something to say, though. Is that correct? Well, uh, a few a few things, yeah. One is it sounds like sort of basically a consumerism strike that you're yeah. talking about, right? More than a boycott, it's almost like a strike, like a general strike of consumers. Um, but another thing I wanted to bring in, and I think somebody mentioned it a while ago, uh, is when you're doing civil disobedience, especially if you're doing it in a place where there's some amount of like, you know, free flow of information and whatever. If you can add an element of humor, that is very powerful. Like if you look at a lot of the things in particular that the, um, the Velvet Revolution, like Czech, uh, uh, movements against communism, they often incorporated a degree of humor. And it probably was because a lot of the people who sort of led that movement were like artists and playwrights and whatever like that. So they could be kind of creative and almost a little bit whimsical about it in a way. Yeah. But it worked, but it worked. And my favorite story of civil disobedience in American history in terms of entertainment value, not in terms of like, you know, moving the needle on a giant moral crusade or whatever, but in terms of like just being hilarious is, and this is mentioned in the Ken Burns documentary on alcohol prohibition during alcohol prohibition, uh, Fiorello LaGuardia was a congressman from New York is he would later become governor of New York. And he was very much opposed to prohibition. He was a wet. He thought prohibition was stupid and immoral and unworkable and whatever. And so at one point, and, and it helped too that he was a congressman because he could kind of like, you know, get attention and whatever in a way average Joe maybe couldn't. But at one point during prohibition to, to protest how stupid it was, he went down uh, to some, you know, corner in a very busy corner in New York City. He had non-alcoholic near beer. And he had, you know, whatever else you needed to add to it to make it real beer, right? Yeast or whatever. And so he, he just walks down right in public and he like, you know, let the media know. So there were people there and whatever. And he takes the non-alcoholic beer. He adds the yeast and whatever else he needs to make it real beer. <laughs> he waits. It brews. He drinks it and says it is refreshing and satisfying. He then looks around for somebody to come arrest him. He finds the nearest cop. He walks right up to him, basically is like, hey, look what I'm doing, drinking a beer. And and the cop kind of goes, uh, it's not my job to enforce that sort of thing and walks away. <laughs> and, you know, did that single handedly bring down prohibition? No, but it was another little kind of like pebble in the avalanche in a way, you know, that in particular that you could get a congressman, right, to do this sort of thing. But but he had a great sense of humor about it, you know, and the way he staged it and the lines like I forget the exact words he used and whatever, but um it was very funny. 
and you know a lot of people are going to look at that and realize this is this is amusing and funny this stunt this congressman is doing but it's also illustrating the absurdity of a stupid law and so you know sometimes if you can incorporate a little bit of entertainment value or humor or whatever you can really make the regime or whatever it is they're doing that you're trying to get them to stop look ridiculous and making someone look ridiculous is one of the best ways to to take away their power. All right. So how do we incorporate that into Fuck Off Friday? Fuck Off Friday. <laughs> well, I, I mean, like the, 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 name, the name's a good start. <laughs> it is, right? I, I don't know. Like, I, I, it's not exactly what CJ said, but wouldn't it be kind of cool that, like, we, we picked some sort of uh, hashtag and posted just thousands and thousands upon thousands of pictures of us just hanging out with our friends and family and not spending money in their economy, like drinking moonshine and meat and, and, and pictures like we posted when, when the lockdown started of me hanging out with my grandkids and playing classic rock music and hanging out by the pond and stuff like, cause people were like, you know, people were afraid. And I'm like, I'm not hiding from my grandkids. Right. I'm not giving up one minute with my family for your fear, bitch bullshit. Right? Like, so maybe that's kind of part of like the, the pile on, like all of us could be spending money with you, but we're not. But we're and, not. If they, and if they enforce this shit they're talking about passing, it's not going to be by our choice for three days. It's going to be mandated. And and I think the big thing, and maybe this is uh, kind of a catchphrase or something, like we're not doing it. I mean, that's my thing. Like, I'm not doing this. You can put whatever restrictions you want on me, and you can take your vaccine and shove it all the way up your ass. I'm not doing this. You're not getting me to do this. And I'm the most nonviolent person you meet. But if you come here and try to do this to me, you're going to see the violent side of me. And I've been trained in violence. I will show you what it looks like. Like, I have my limit. And I think that, like, that's kind of where we're at. This is our limit. This is our line. Yes, this is the hill I will die on. I'm not letting totally. you do this to me. There's I'm not letting you do this to my way. children. I'm That's not right. letting you do this to my grandchildren. You can go fuck yourself. And here's me having a good time. And I think I'm not we hurting need you. to tap into our vaccinated friends who also don't agree with the vaccine. Correct. Transport. So don't make well, it about say. unvaccinated versus vaccinated. It's simply about the passport. My right to papers. refuse. It's about right. my right to refuse. I know a lot of vaccinated people who give zero fucks about if anybody else gets vaccinated. Right. I mean, they right. give some, some of them care, but they certainly don't want to so, force a needle into an arm. Well, even if you so, have been vaccinated, you should not be okay with having papers to travel, even if you can get them. Right? Like that, that that's what this is about. This isn't really about vaccinated or unvaccinated. This is about, I need a digital passport to buy fucking bacon. Right. No, that's not okay in America. And I think that that to me is as simple as Gandhi saying, I'm going to march to the sea and make salt. Yeah. Like I do not need papers to travel. Like I think we're gone, way gone in America, but I think the majority, the vast majority of people re- would resonate with that message. That That's why to me, it's important to not make the, the narrative be, are you vaccinated or are you not vaccinated? Right. But right. to make the narrative, are you cool with it being mandatory and are you cool with the passports and all that stuff, right? And the tracking. Because, yeah, I, I think you're right that there's a lot of people who, for whatever reason, uh, did get vaccinated who, you know, still are not cool with the idea of forcing it on people who don't want it and still aren't cool with papers, please, or whatever, or the digital version of papers, please. 
If you aren't cool with digital papers, please. I like this one. My body, my choice. Whatever happened to my body, my choice? It like went right out the window in the last so, two years. We, well, they they never applied it. They never applied it consistently. Right, right. There you go. But like, if we take these these like taglines, these memes, we have to put it in a in a larger story in a narrative that's funny and witty, uh, that makes fun of these guys for the ridiculousness. Like, like this is so ridiculous. This should never happen. And we're gonna show you how. Yeah. Well, I, mean, well, I never got to say my opinion about if I think it's time. So geez. I'm just going to assert my, my moderator um, powers here and talk about that for a second. I'm I'm 100% on board with it's always been time. It has always been time to stand up and opt out on your own. And I think there's a great opportunity right now with all the bullshit that's happened in the last almost two years now, I guess 18 to 20 months where people woke up, looked around, did not like what they saw all of a sudden, and then got scared and didn't know what to do. We can show them something to do that's peaceful and move forward with that and, and help give people courage by framing something like fuck off Friday in a way that's funny and it's, I mean, it's kind of a low risk. Let me say that's not what I think we should call right? it. You're not going to, obviously not, but you know what I mean. Um, it's not, it's, it's something you can do that is a, an act of civil disobedience, that it has a goal, an overarching goal or grounded in the moral high ground. That's not, <laughs> not probably going to land anybody in jail. Because nobody said you had to go shopping on Black Friday. That's what I'm saying. Like, prefer not to. Is civil disobedience really necessarily breaking the law? See, I don't think there's anything in what I said uh, uh, we should maybe do and figure out how to like refine it that's actually illegal. Staying home and not doing shit is what they made us do for you know, depending on where you were for Texas, 40 days for some places, freaking a year. So we're just doing what you said. We're just doing it in a way that makes it clear. And and it's interesting that by most of the country is open to a degree. By opening, yeah. they actually become vulnerable to this. Because I, I'm going to tell you, if you're a restaurant owner and you know this is coming, and like, okay, first of all, and you end up being lucky that half your people don't come to work because you have nothing for them to do, and you've been full up on Fridays, and there's four people in there terrified wearing a mask, pulling it down and taking a drink and putting it back on. And that's what your restaurant looks like. It just got personal, right? It it, it just got to where, oh, Nicole and I are fighting, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's co, co-admin facility capabilities there. But yeah, I mean, I think that like, I think it would make an, it would make an impact on my, me if I'm a business owner. You know, and, and it doesn't really, I don't really, I, I gotta be very clear about this. If this gets done and, and I'm in any way associated with causing it, I don't want to hurt the people that run these businesses. It's no. not, let's punish you because you're pro anything. It's, I just want you to understand the segment of society that if you let this happen, you will have to do without. This is what it looks like when 40% of the population, who I'm going to guess are the majority of people, that, especially like restaurants, that go out in the first place because we're not afraid, that 
don't go to freaking McDonald's. We go to, you know, Gloria's or some, or, you know, Riata or something and that we tip well. Cause if, if you don't have clientele that tips well, you can't get good servers. You know, they pay the waiters like two something an hour, right? Like servers make all their money because of the, you know, the fact that we add some money to that tip. When, when you only get shitty clients, you can't have a good restaurant. I, I'm sorry. I think it's time that we do something. And I, that's the only thing I can come up with here that actually might work. Well, guys, if you're listening to this and you're like, I got a better idea, the best way to get the better idea to us is email us by going to unloosethegoose.com and clicking on contact and those emails go to us. I would love to hear ideas from the masses of people who listen to this podcast because we continue to grow and y'all have very different perspectives than we do. And I think it's important to hear that. I'm going to transition us because we're coming up on two hours to Snooker the Goose. But t.me slash unloose the goose. Hit us up in Telegram, DM us, and tell us what kind of resources you have to help make this uh, this little foray into civil disobedience uh, a reality. Okay, snooker. Valid. Snooker. Who wants to snooker for snooker the goose is where we ask another goose any question we want to. Who wants to go first? We're going to do four total questions. Okay. I'm going to ask CJ in the last six months, what's the best hike you've taken and why? Um, in the last six months, it would be. A hike I did with my mom on a trail that I don't even know if it has a name, uh, outside of Black Mountain, North Carolina, way up onto the mountains where you could see like half the state, it seemed yeah. like, and it was gorgeous. Awesome. Who wants to go next? Mine is for all three geese that are here. Uh, well, actually, it's for two, because I know the answer from Nicole is going to be yes, because she's always here. Are, are you two other pikers going to come to... Uh, TSP 2021 fall workshop and not say you're going to come and then not show up, but actually come and hang out with people. I got, I got COVID that last time. That was, that's not legit. <laughs> it's October, middle of October. You got the COVID. Okay. So you can't get the COVID twice that you can't nope. use this as an excuse again. I, I'm, I'm not sure if I followed the question. It seemed like there were a lot of double negatives. Are you going to come, but not come, but say you're going to come, but not show up, but sort of show up, but maybe be there. Like, well, you know, I'm being unfair to you. It's not unfair to X because he did it. It wouldn't be unfair if Sal was here because he did it. Somebody else did it, too. I don't remember who. But you can't say you're coming, then don't come, and then get credit for agreeing to be here. That doesn't work that way. So are you going to, to get off your ass, come to Texas, and hang out with, like, 80 cool people in November, CJ? Uh, I would have to look at the calendar and when exactly it is and get back to you. But for sure, I wouldn't say I'm going to come if I'm not planning on actually coming. <laughs> so whether, whether I ultimately say yes or no, I'm, I'm sticking with my, uh, sticking with my answer. Yeah. Awesome. There's a lot of clarifying, quantifying, uh, uh, qualifiers for that statement, CJ. Um, if, it, if it fits in my schedule, I'd love to come. Okay. <laughs> my assistant can pencil you in. <laughs> no, I'm in. <laughs> Yeah, he knows my answer. Jack, I get to drive a car that's not going to strand me. That's, like, new this year. Nicole's always here, man. I, I, I don't even have to ask. She just comes, you know. Yeah. I'm she bringing helps. that up. She, she gives us assistance, and 
you know, she brings coffee and she's awesome. So I, I got a freeze dryer this year, Jack, and I freeze dried, um, strawberries from my property and I'm going to pour bourbon in this jar of strawberries and there's going to be, and they're going to soak up all that liquid because they're totally dry and they're going to be tasty snacks at your I, workshop. That's my plan. Mountains. So I, here's I, I my problem. Um, out of all of the things that you make yourself besides coffee, what is your favorite? Whether it be like a chicken coop that you've built well or a bourbon that you've made yourself or a tea that you picked and grew yourself, what is your favorite self-reliant homesteading thing? Oh, okay. You just took it out of the creative arena. That makes it a lot easier. Okay, there you go. Okay. I was going to be like, the songs I write? Come on, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> out of everything, I think my favorite right now is cheese. I make a lot of cheese that's homemade. I bring feta to Jack's, but I've really been into like, I used to be really into alcohol fermentation, but I've been into milk fermentation for a couple of years. And the longer I get into it, the more I learn. It's kind of an art and you go by feel, even though there's a recipe, but it's also something that you get better at over time. Cool. Yeah. Have you heard of Lebney, by the way? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you make that as well? I could. I have not. I would be down to try some of your Lebney. Yeah. I grew up on that. Okay. Okay. I've got a very specific question for Jack. I know that one thing you and I have in common is we both enjoy uh, saltwater fishing on the coast of Florida. So I would ask you, what would you say is your favorite species of fish to catch when you're fishing in Florida near shore saltwater. What's just your overall absolute favorite where when you hook up with one, you're like, Oh, this is awesome. From a sporting prospect or from an eating prospect. Oh, good. Uh, good follow up. Uh, let's say one of each. Okay. From a sporting prospect snook. Um, it's like somebody took a, a bass and gave it psychedelic drugs and steroids. That's they're, good eating too. They're, they're amazing. You be, there's a very narrow window, I think, when you can yeah. you can keep them. But um, especially fishing off boats in the mangroves, where when they hit you, there's none of this playing around. You got to get them out of there because if they go in those mangroves, you're going to lose them. Um, that's my absolute favorite fish to catch. I would say to eat would be pompano or permit. They're basically the same when it comes to, to the taste, but uh, both of them can be caught off the beach. And uh, there's a new thing out. It's a saltwater freaking bait. Now I can't think of it. A fish bites. And they have a, uh, a crab uh, flavor, and it looks stupid. It's like a little strip. And freaking permit and pompano both love those things, and they can't steal the bait. So that's the bait you want to use for them. But when it comes to eating, man, it's hard to beat pompano and permit. Good answers. Mine, if anybody's curious, uh, for, for just pure sport and thrill, gotta be tarpon, just because they're so crazy. Um, for eating, my favorite, redfish. I just love redfish, but. Jeff calls redfish magic, baby. You gotta have that to go with it, man. That's, that's, that's the lick right there. Yeah, and I've never been fishing. I've only been catching. Yeah. (laughs) Fish, believe it or not. What? Salmon once when I was like 21. Other than that, I have not eaten anything from the sea. Shrimp, I've had a couple times. Lobster, I ate. This This is wrong. Are are you serving fish at uh, TSP 2021? (laughs) 
I, so, I don't know. I mean, he's probably not going to come anyway. So I'm you know. coming. We've done it that, before. We we did we did fried uh, white bass the one yeah, year. Yeah, we both caught a bunch of them. So I, I mean, I, I, but I, you weren't I, there, I, pussy. You were home with COVIDs. I I was sick. <laughs> like, like, hey, I just heard X say he's coming, Jack. So he's on record now. Yeah, I'm on record. All the public knows. I uh, when I was a kid, my dad got a big Maine lobster. It was like about as big as I was as a child, and he took the the, the clippers off the rubber bands on the clippers on the claws and stuck me in the kitchen on the floor with the thing. And I could barely walk at the time. And it was this big, again, as big as I was nearly. Right. And traumatized me to the point. Like I ne- like I never looked at anything from the sea the same again. <laughs> I, right. I feel like, I feel like you shouldn't be allowed to reside in Florida though. <laughs> I know, with, I your, with your no seafood policy. That just seems wrong. Yep, yep. No, I gotta start eating fish. I gotta learn about fish. So that's, that's my next, uh, growing edge in homesteading and, and survival and self-reliance. Awesome. Well, this has been episode 52 of Unloose the Goose. We've got CJ from the Dangerous History Podcast, Xavier Hawk from Phyron and Baseline, Jack from the Survival Podcast. I'm Nicole Sauce from Living Free in Tennessee. If you want to help give the show a boost, share this episode if you liked it. Shoot a link to your friends. We've got, uh, we're on Odyssey. We're on YouTube. The podcast audio will go out tomorrow on most podcasters and go get shit done, guys. And this was the birth of Fuck Off Friday. Fuck, Fuck Off Friday. Friday. That's right. And as we sign off, honk, 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 unloose the goose. We'll take no views.